0: the Core Supply CAODC podcast for January 2020. We are into a new year, and to be honest, so far things are looking pretty good for Canadian oil and gas, and we have not only a pretty good, but a pretty great show to start what we hope is going to be the best year for our industry in a long time. Later in the show, we have Prem Singh, founder of Canadians for Democracy and Prosperity, joining us. And as promised, in our December episode, we are going to kick things off with a look back at 2019 with our special guest, CAODC President and CEO, my boss, Mark Schultz.
1: How's everybody doing? John, you doing okay?
0: Doing well, Mark. And listen, I'm sorry. Last week, I didn't refill the coffee machine, and I think I let people down. I was in a hurry; it slipped my mind. And I want to tell you that in 2020, I'm going to be well. I guess that was 2020 last yeah. week. Yeah, but from now on, so that's on the bucket
1: <laughs> list, eh? Hey, of uh, pulling up your socks and coffee, uh, coffee pre- preparation. Hey? From
0: now on, in 2020, the coffee detail is taken care of. Okay, well,
1: I'm going to hold you to that one. I was, uh, we had a lot of, lot of cranky folks in the office here with no coffee and no caffeine in the bloodstream, so uh, let that be a lesson to you and the rest of us.
0: <laughs> well, and you, and you were mentioning it. It's January 20, Monday, January 20, also known as... Saddest day, blue Beer. Monday. Blue Monday. And, it's, uh... and you're wearing a blue suit <laughs> and
1: a blue tie. Well, it's just like St.
0: Patrick's Day. You've got to wear green... Uh, blue Monday, you got to wear blue. And I'm wearing black, you I so you're wearing black, black Friday, obviously. So you're even, you're really sad. You're yeah. almost like you're in mourning. Well, I've been in mourning <laughs> for the last
1: five years, and hopefully there's going to be a resurrection here in 2020. So
0: <laughs> we can only hope. So, all right. Um, we've got a bit of a, some notes here. And um, I think the best way to do it is let's set the table. And let's go all the way back to December 2018, and we're heading into 2019. Well, let's just set the scene here. So, provincially, the NDP is still governing the province, and they have turned around and started to push very hard for the Trans Mountain expansion. Um, they announce the production curtailment in December, that is to begin. January first, twenty nineteen. We had, um, and maybe you can speak to this, but we had Rachel Notley as our keynote at the Associate Member Breakfast in November of twenty
1: eighteen. Well, not only that is uh, so. We so she the premier came out to speak and delivered, um, you know, what I would consider, you know, timely news, uh, timely announcement on providing our service rig members with a. Uh, carbon carbon tax uh, refund, struggling service recontractors that were paying into the program uh, but should have been exempt for a number of reasons, but we were able to successfully get that negotiated uh, and uh, you know, a promising policy for our members uh, on behalf of the government. But I mean, look, I mean, 2018, the tail end of 2018, I think can be summed up by differentials and pipeline politics and. I mean, the differentials, it was, it was a product of the fact that, you know, we just did not have any sufficient form of egress out of Alberta. And I, and I think it didn't, I, I don't think it matters who is governing Alberta. Um, the differentials were causing a huge hole, not only in the provincial treasuries, but also in the treasuries of private companies. They weren't getting anywhere close to the uh, the market price uh, or the, the um the, the price that it, it should be if we had sufficient egress. And pipelines uh, are, were going to be the key uh, deliverable, or I guess the key outcome of, of trying to to manage our way through this. So, you know, it didn't matter, you know, you had uh, Premier Rachel Notley at the time, you had the opposition leader at the time, uh, Jason Kenney, also uh, arguing uh, for some sort of, you know, curtailment, and I think it was a necessary evil. The the challenge, of course, on the curtailment part is once they introduced that, it certainly didn't uh, it didn't make twenty nineteen a very promising year. Mm-hmm. And our business, of course, as you know, is it functions on the more wells that we drill and the more wells we service, the higher prospects and profitability of our businesses. So when you're in curtailment, you got differentials that are that have imploded. You got capital markets that are completely squeezed. You got no egress uh, at all or any prospects of egress because it's all riddled in in politics and and disruption uh, across the country. You know, it just, it, it really hurt the service sector.
0: Yeah. So just to back up there, the differential in December from WTI to WCS was about 14 bucks. Well, just over 13 and a half. But that was... I mean, at points during the year, it was a lot more than that. And I should have done a little bit more research um, to, to sort of set the stage for that. But yeah, I mean, it was, it was uh, 13 and a half in December. And we'll see when we get into Q1 that that changed around a little bit, which was great. In terms of pipelines, um, yeah, I mean, so December 18, uh, Premier Horgan vowing to do whatever it takes to stop Trans Mountain. Uh, Keystone XL was halted. Uh, by a federal judge in the states for an additional environmental impact assessment. Um, On the federal side, we've got the second reading of Bill C-69 happening in the Senate. Um, So things aren't looking very good. I guess uh, from a provincial standpoint, after an ambitious campaign to unite the conservative movement in Alberta, the newly formed UCP, and leader Jason Kenny were gearing up at this point pretty heavily for the upcoming election in May. Uh, so three, I guess Q2 of uh, 19. Yeah. Um, from an activity perspective, our average active rigs in uh, December 18 were 198. We had 5,078 operating days on the drilling side and 86,402 operating hours on the service side which were pretty par for the course for for that year.
1: That's got to be wells though, not operating days.
0: No, that was operating days in December 18th. Oh, de- in December. Oh, yep.
1: correct. Okay, got it. Yeah, yep. sorry. I thought that was for the uh for
0: annually. Uh no, no. Yeah, so that was just December 18th. So yeah, it was uh not a very merry Christmas for the service sector in eighteen, and then um, not an overly happy new year to kick off things in in 2019
1: Yeah, and I think 2019, I think for many many folks in the industry, was a year that we probably wanted to you know forget about it 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 was supposed to be um, a year of recovery uh, it was supposed to be the year that know as we came out of 2018 um, you know we thought the prospects were going to be a lot a lot better for 19 but of course when we had differentials and we had all the challenges of the pipeline pieces um, you know turned out to you know 19 being a lot more difficult than I think many people anticipated to be but why don't we get into Q1 for 2019 and you know Q1 mean you know when you look at our industry it really was um, the you know, the the quarter of uh, awareness, bringing awareness. We had a number of different rallies that were going on across the country. We had, you know, rally for resources, Canada Action, Oil Respect was putting on a few events. The United uh, We Roll Pro Pipeline convoys going from Red Deer to Ottawa. And and it really was a sign of, um, of. uh, I guess frustration with, uh, with, with in the, within the natural resource community, uh, obviously in Alberta and in in Saskatchewan. But you know we had a number. I mean, a r- r- rally for resources based out of northeast British Columbia. Um, they're well,
0: they're out of yeah, out of Red
1: Deer. But oh I, oh, yeah. sorry, I'm thinking of Fort uh, St. John um, for LNG. Fort St. John for LNG. Yep. And um, so, I mean, you had, a, you had a number of folks that were kind of rallying the troops, getting people involved in trying to get the attention of Ottawa, and what turned out uh, the passage of uh, Bill C-69, Bill C-48. What was interesting, though, is, you know, the Canadian Senate was the, the platform in which the industry was trying to work uh, to get some significant amendments through that would not make bill c69 which is commonly known as the no more pipeline act it, it would have made it work it would it would make it workable it wouldn't make it perfect but it would make it workable and all of those 188 amendments were passed by the senate but returned most of them 99 percent of them were returned down by the house of commons and so it was devastating i mean it was really bad news politically bad news economically we got, um, a lot of, uh, lot of uh, headwinds that the industry was, was grappling with in, in, in Q1.
0: And from an advocacy perspective, I thought this was very interesting because, you know, as our members will know, we kicked off oil respect in February of 2016. And at the time, I'm not going to get it all right here, but uh, of course, we had Cody's. Canada Action was, you know, the first one in my mind, really. That was already ongoing at that time. We came on board. And I don't know that there were too many other, others, and I apologize to any I, that were going at the time that I've uh, missed here, but there weren't that many is what I'm getting at. And so now, three years later, almost, I mean, very close to three years later, we're starting to see the kind of grassroots advocacy that we had always hoped for with the Oil Respect campaign. Like These rallies were something else. And they were happening all the time. Uh, We had one down at McDougal. We had uh, several up at the Ledge in Edmonton. Um, There was a couple at City Hall here in in Calgary. Um, And I know that Rally for Resources were across the country. They were in B.C. Um, They were out in in the east as well, eastern Canada. Um, And so, yeah, it just, I guess, from an organizational standpoint, um, you know, why it took 3 years for our industry to sort of really get things going i don't know but
1: um well i think a lot of it could be culturally cu- culturally driven too right john i mean our our industry hasn't hasn't really required hasn't been required to defend itself in the way that that the the cert, the, the environment today would re- would require and um but i think as these movements and as these rallies uh, were taking place, the, the growth and the volume and, and folks that were participating over time, I think, increased because our industry and the folks that are busy behind the scenes working in it started to realize that, um, you know, if they didn't stand up for their industry that they, they love they understand the importance of our industry, but if they didn't, didn't make a stand, no one was going to make that stand for them.
0: Well, and a, and a great point there, they were working. And I think you know, three years after the fact, a lot of them weren't working. They mm. probably had a little more time on their hands to to do a bit more advocacy, uh, which is unfortunate. And we're still seeing it um, today as we get into 2020. But yeah, I mean, uh, you're right. I think the importance over time became very clear. And and I think you know, a lot of this legislation coming out of Ottawa and. People in our industry knowing the type of work that goes into uh, all of the safeguards that we have in terms of uh, pipelines, in terms of everything we do in this industry, and then you start seeing legislation coming in that that uh, is banning stuff. You know, I think that really started to wake people up and say, "Well, hold on a second, they're getting things wrong because I I know how safe we are." We, you know, and some of this stuff is just over the top. So,
1: so then we move. I think into, I guess Q2 of 2019 was was a much well. Hang on a second. Whoa. Before
0: we before we get there, let's uh, talk a little bit about. So the curtailment is now in place in Q1 that's 2019. Right. So let's look at the uh, price of WTI is at 57 U.S. Western Canadian Select is at 44. So that's up 13 dollars from December. Of 2018 already, so it looks like the curtailment is starting to work um, right away, which is fantastic. Of course, we didn't—I didn't mention in, in as we left 2018, Aco was at a buck 69. Through Q1 2019, Aco was at a buck 88, so it's come up a little bit. Um, active rigs, we are at this, and this is a Q1 2019 summary now. Active rigs were averaged at 196 through the quarter versus 300 in 2018. So Q1 2019, we're already down 35% in terms of active rigs. Operating days, we are at 5,104 in Q1 2019 versus 7,614 in uh, Q1 2018. So we're down 33% year over year in our operating days. On the service side, our operating hours in Q1 2019 were 100,027 versus 110,098 in 2018. So we're down 9% on the service side. So that's where we're at in terms of activity through Q1 2019. So the year isn't starting off great. We're down 30, just about 30, 35% uh, year mm-hmm. over year.
1: So I'm going to like challenge these you on are. these operating days, uh, All right. John, so these, uh, we might have, to, I don't know if these are right, because we ended off the year with uh, 47,000 operating days in the year of 2019, and so when I add these up, that doesn't come close to what that...
0: So that's an average, that's a monthly average, so for Q1, we would have had, say, 15,000, right? Well, that's a monthly it's average. It's a monthly average, that's right.
1: Oh, okay, Yeah.
0: okay. So Q2 2019, provincially, the UCP wins a resounding majority, and right off the bat promises to reduce red tape, remove the carbon tax, and begin to rebuild Canada's oil and gas sector. And I don't know if you want to comment a bit on on the work that uh, the UCP, and um, I guess UCP leader prior to winning, Jason Kenney, were doing with the industry. Well in advance of the election. Well, and I,
1: yeah, so it, it all kind of stemmed from the Premier's desire to get Alberta open for business again. And so the, the flagship policies that they introduced was around the carbon tax, uh, reducing corporate taxes, and then dealing with, with red tape. And on the red tape front, you know, the UCP uh, and their, their platform um, committee, so to speak, uh, did a great job with reaching out to industry groups like CAODC uh, prior to the introduction or the development of the UCP platform for the 2019 campaign to get ideas of like where are the issues, what what, how do how do we get this industry back on track again? And so you know we came to the table with a number of different strategies and different policy recommendations and quite frankly many of them have already been acted upon by this government the the big piece uh was uh talking about transportation regulatory reforms for our service rig industry which has done a a significant has made a significant impact in um recognizing the limited exposure that our industry has on the roadway uh and then regulating it based on its unique needs from a transportation side so You know, those sorts of issues, we talked a little bit about helping the government and advising the government on their curtailment strategy, um, and and those were some of the pieces, I think, that we were heavily uh, influential uh, when trying to um, uh, support the government in their efforts to get this industry back online again.
0: Yes. Um, We did some great work, and, and that, you know, huge... Recognition for the members who sit on our committees, uh, CAODC members who are the lifeblood of our association. They're the ones who come in and, and uh, provide all the information needed so that uh, we can walk into these meetings with government officials and we've got all of the, the statistics we need uh, we've got all the relevant uh, information from a regulatory standpoint, and this is all work that's done by volunteers, volunteer members. So, um, you know, they they uh, have done so much in the last little while um, to help us succeed and, and ultimately, uh, you know, I guess lower costs and, and just provide a much better environment uh, along with uh, cooperation with uh, the UCP. So...
1: So and then, of course, in in Q2 of 2019, we had um, the amendments that came from the Senate for Bill C69, C48. Those had all been rejected, and C48, which was the tanker moratorium, and C69, the No More Pipelines Act, received royal assent, which basically means it was passed into law. And uh, and then, you know, as a you know as a as a I guess maybe an offering from the federal government to deal with um, some of the challenges with respect to C-48 and C-69, there was another announcement of the second approval of TMX, which uh, had been, had been, um, uh, I guess, um, been held up in the courts, been held up by uh, a number of different protests, and so that was approved for the second time by the, the federal government.
0: Yeah, and it's, uh, you know curious that overwhelmingly the response from Western Canada on both of those pieces of legislation were they need to be changed. But not only that, six provincial uh, premiers came out and said this legislation needs to be changed. So I don't know. Any thoughts on on what else we could have done in that situation?
1: Well, and I think the reason why why so many premiers stood up to um, uh, bills such as C-69 uh, or C-48 Is it intruded on um, significant uh, provincial jurisdiction. And, you know, it, it, I think it hindered the ability for provinces like Alberta and Saskatchewan uh, from exerting autonomy when it comes to the regulation of, of their, uh, their natural resources. And it made it more difficult, I think, from a long-term vantage point, to see future egress uh, prospects. So, you know, I think that certainly helped. It 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 added uh, important volume, I think, and uh, attention to to the issue. Unfortunately, at uh, the outcome that we were looking for, uh, didn't materialize. But we will we will see um, whether under a new minority government that there is some latitude to look at renegotiating some of these, uh, some of these uh, policies.
0: So on the pipeline front, uh, BC Court of Appeal has, uh, so Horgan's NDP backed by the Green, uh, I guess, contingent, and what would we call that? The Green Party? Minority <laughs> yeah. government? Coalition right. government? Yes, cool. yeah. thank you. Um, had had made a case to the BC Court of Appeal that the province should be able to limit the flow of heavy oil across its borders. And the BC Court of Appeal came back and ruled that it could not do that. So that was uh, a ruling uh, in favor of Trans Mountain, which was, was uh, great, but of course... We know that Premier Horgan was uh, still moving forward with uh, basically a laundry list of things he could do to try to block this this pipeline, uh, of course, that cost to uh, taxpayers and uh, you know it costs in terms of jobs et cetera for uh, for Canadians in the oil patch. but anyway, so that was happening on the pipeline side um, commodities wise for the quarter, the average. WTI price was 59 bucks a barrel, U.S. Um, and Western Canadian Select was up to 47. So you know these are nice prices, prices we haven't seen for WCS in, in some time. Uh, the ACO spot price for the quarter was an average of 89 cents. Um, and then in an activity uh, standpoint, so again these are these are averages uh, for the quarter. Q2 2019, we are at 96 active rigs versus 127 in 2018, so that's down 24%. On the drilling operating days side, we are at 2422 versus 3200 in 2018, so we're down 24% there. On the operating hours side in the service sector, service rigs, We're at 74,275 versus 70,470 in 2018. So we're up 5% on the service side there. You know,
1: what's interesting, though, is as we start building our database for the service rig sector, um, it's very telling and and informative to see uh, how much of a greater impact The economic uh, woes of 2019 had on the drilling sector compared to the service rig sector. I mean, no question, the service sector, service rig sector, is still down. But I mean, even Q2 operating down operating days, which is a measurement on the drilling side, is down 24%, while operating hours is only down 5%. What's up? Uh, Sorry, up 5%. Correct. Um, I mean, like even when we go back. uh, back to, to q1, uh, operating days down thirty three percent operating hours down nine percent yeah um, you know and, and I mean there's part of that is I mean on the service sector service rig side i mean there's there's three main um, operations that a service rig does maintenance, completion work, and abandonments. and you know with the I think with the completion work, uh, drying up or, or or being limited because of the lack of wells that have drilled, I think the abandonment piece and the maintenance work uh, both helped to insulate, I think, the industry from uh, a greater uh, decline than what the drilling uh, sector experienced.
0: Yeah, all year long, you know, I'd hear anecdotally that in pockets, I mean, not everywhere, but in, in pockets across Western Canada, you um, the service sector was doing all right, and they were they were looking for guys. They had rigs out. Um, you know, we even had rigs up in the uh, Northwest Territories happening there. So um, no, it was it wasn't a horrible year uh, from the service rig side of things, which is which is you know I mean you take what you can get.
1: I mean the pricing still still was was difficult, um, but I think when nice. we look at uh, overall activity, again it didn't. You get hit as hard but one of the the pieces here 89 cents mcf acre. yeah this was a really really tough uh, quarter and going into quarter three uh you know you know and it's frustrating right because when you look at this 89 cents for our responsibly p- produced most e- ethically produced natural gas on planet earth uh capturing 89 cents when, if we had the capability of exporting that through LNG terminals, we could be getting 12, 15. Um, you know, what, what, a, what, a, what, a, what an absolute um, disappointment, I think, for the industry and for Canadians. I and mean, this, is, this is outrageous that we're getting these types of natural gas prices here uh, in Canada when we could be getting, uh, uh, fetching so much, so much more for our, for our natural resources. What do you think? Should we go into Q3?
0: Let's move into Q3 here, Q3 2019, Uh, UCP government in Alberta is in full swing, Um, red tape reduction is happening, the carbon tax has been repealed.
1: The Canadian Energy Centre or the War Room being kind of planned out and…
0: Yeah, there was talk about that at that time, Um, pipeline perspective. Uh, Keystone's Nebraska path was approved by the state Supreme Court in Q3. Um, And then from the Enbridge Line 3 perspective, Minnesota regulators announced they will revisit an environmental review rather than challenge a recent court ruling. So that was good news there. Uh, Of course, on the TMX side, um, the federal government had had purchased the pipeline, and of course, they were saying that they're going to build it. And to be fair, they've never wavered on that. They've said the entire time that it, it it's going to be built. And so when you look at that, I mean, it's already shaping up that three of these projects are still moving along, albeit after, in some cases, 10 years. Um, they're still making positive headway. And it seems just the odds, uh, you're moving through the hurdles are going to end at some point, you know, and either the the pipeline's going can to be canceled or it's going to get built. And so, as time passes, you can only hope that these barriers are con- going to continue to fall. And um, so, there's some significant movement on the uh, the transportation side there, which is very positive.
1: Yeah, and I think just on on the federal politics side with Oil Respect campaign that that we have, and if you're not familiar with our Oil Respect campaign, I encourage you to check us out on Facebook or, or Twitter, um, or just go to oilrespect.ca. Um, you know, we we try to stay cutting edge and in front of uh, all of this messaging, John, and I think the staff here at CAODC and, uh, and our partners in other uh, industry uh, campaigns have done, I think, a reasonable job, given the, um, the, the climate, the resources that we, we have, of highlighting and keeping this th- this story front and center. But one thing that's amazing, though, as you go, you look at our kind of summary from Q2 to Q3, and you can already you can already see um, the nuggets of of, of um, prospects or opportunity. I think, right? Yeah. Um, you know, keep in mind. I think if uh, if it mistakes, if I'm mistaken here, uh, correct me. But I, you know, we thought line three was was going to be. Uh, up and up and running the end of 2019 yeah we Um, had
0: that in our uh our forecast and
1: so you know now it's a it's a whole year away and when you look at it from the perspective of an investment community you're thinking okay like so yeah so you got you have some prospects of egress but when are we actually going to see it built when are we actually going to see when are you going to deliver the goods and you know, up until kind of Q3, it was there. There just wasn't much light at the end of the tunnel when we were going to get through uh, all of these regulatory hurdles. And um, you know, this, this this type of news is, is meaningful, but it's kind of like a little bit of uh, industry has been crying wolf for for a, for a number of uh, years, where it's it's going to get built, it's going to get built. Well, when is it going to get built? Yeah. And so it's it's interesting to, to see some of those wins. Um, but again, I think the investment community is still looking for, you know, the first barrel of oil that's going to be shipped.
0: Yeah. And in Q3, in Q3, we're also approaching the election. And so with our campaign and, and many other campaigns, we are focusing on voting energy. And as we know, um, that wasn't really the top talking point for most of the federal parties. As the election approached, I think uh, the environment was probably number one. And so we were doing our part to talk about how a strong energy sector in Canada helps the environment while at the same time provides good paying jobs for Canadians, um, builds the foundation for our industry moving into the future and whatever the uh, energy space looks like as new technologies come on board are we still going to need oil and gas? Well, of course we are. We, we see all the forecasts that are happening. Um, we're not going to go from 100 million barrels per day to zero overnight. Um, Canada's supplying just over 5 million barrels per day, between 5 and 7 million barrels per day. Why shouldn't we be looking at growing our market share even inside of a decreasing um, demand outlook? So you know, we were pushing that hard. And a lot of other campaigns were doing so. Um, Yeah, I mean the election when we get into Q4 here, um, you know, as we know, who knows how well our our, uh, well, I mean we got the popular vote in terms of uh, of of, uh, voting energy. If if you equate the conservatives with uh, pro oil and gas policy, Uh, but we also heard loudly. And clearly from Canadians that the environment is a priority in that election. So well,
1: of course it's a priority. It's a, it's a priority for everyone involved in our industry. I mean, that's... Always that's, has been. Always has been. You know, that's, been. that's the, um, you know, like when you look at the men and women who operate our, in our industry, they are just as much part and concerned about the environment their kids and their grandkids are going to live in as people who are living maybe outside of the natural resource sector Um, it's just you know it's just this fallacy this myth that somehow you know being part of the oil and gas industry is associated with you know with uh, environmental degradation and it's just it's just it's just completely not true Um, in fact you know when you look at things like clean tech and R&D and um, and uh, you know environmental sustainable practices, the oil and gas industry is uh, invests in those types of activities ten fifteen fold yeah. uh, compared to any other industry, and so you know like even with the the advent of uh, you know horizontal drilling and 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 pad uh, uh, pad locations and walking systems and. The fact that we've been able to drill a well that used to take us 40 days now it takes us five days. I mean, this is all huge advancements in our ability to develop our resources responsibly. But that that continual improvement is a story that Canadians, coast to coast to coast, um, can be so proud of. And it's just it's just a it we like. John, we we work in the most technologically sophisticated, environmentally sensitive industry in the world on planet Earth. In Canada, here, I can't speak for other oil and gas producers, but I can say, as Canadians, we are the best. And um, now, when we go into the commodity prices for Q3, uh, quarterly average WTI fifty six bucks, WCS forty seven. So again, we've been we've been able to the the, uh, the advent of curtailment is, has has been able to deal with that differential and then ACO goes down even further at 82 cents. So our gas producers our natural gas, dry gas producers are really struggling with these these prices. Um, and then on the activity front, active rigs 155 versus get this 231 in 2018, that's down 33 percent. operating days down, about 33%, again, from 2008. And then operating hours, as we were talking about on the service rig side, down slightly, but only down about 8%. So you're going about 90,291 operating hours versus 97,000 or 98,000 in 2008. So, eighteen, or sorry, 2018, Yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah, so, And that was a trend all year. I mean, as people who listen to the podcast know, uh, we go through the industry update every month and uh, it was just down 30%, down 30%. Um, So yeah, the trend continues through Q3 and uh, we move into the final quarter of the year.
1: Well, provincial politics, um, in Q4 in November, you'll recall we we talked about this in in another podcast, Premier Jason Kenney came to our State of the Industry Luncheon and uh, spoke to us about, I, I think one of the, these terms he uses, hope is on the horizon. Um, and he talked about the progress that they made about you know, red tape reduction and the corporate taxes reduction, the challenges to the federal carbon tax, um, talking about trying to uh, communicate and get our country unified again you know, the reasons. I mean, you know, one of the things that's frustrating is is that um, I think that Canadians, for the most part, from a Canadian to Canadian perspective, are unified in this industry, unified in what we do, unified in the fact that we're we can be proud of being a resource country. Um, but politics, unfortunately, has gotten in the way. And I, don't, I really don't think the political leadership in many facets and in many Paths in our jurisdictions in our country represent, collectively, truly represent collectively, that I think Canadians, for the most part, are behind the industry. Um, so, Jason or Premier Kenny came to to speak about um, about his agenda, and then of course,
0: and he now did he not he, so we're going to talk about the MOA here, but did he not announce that at the luncheon or was that, yeah was that so.
1: So the MOA, the transportation MOA? Yeah. yeah. So the Premier basically spoke about, in principle, the the, right. the negotiations that took place and that we were essentially weeks away from getting right. getting yes. things signed. Yeah. And then, of course, uh, I met with uh, Transportation Minister McIver, um, and we ended up taking him on a service rig uh, tour, a Savannah Well service rig just outside Natan, and signed our moa our new regulatory framework for our service rig division in the doghouse of one of these rigs and we were able to take the the minister and and show him uh the equipment introduce him to the people and our operations and overall it was just a it was a a wonderful wonderful time with the minister and, and and i think many of the guys that um that were working and uh, bearing the uh, uh, the winter that was beginning to because mm-hmm. it wasn't form. it
0: wasn't a terribly cold day no but it wasn't was
1: frosty my, yeah it was I'd say we're probably good minus uh, twenty or so um, minus so eighteen was, so it was cold it was brisk gives you and I gives you a greater appreciation for the men and women that um, bear the elements each can, and every day can you bring imagine this, warm this last homes.
0: week working outside like give me a break. I was having trouble, you know, my car was, I don't have a block heater, I'm sure i told you this many times, and so this car, I don't know how it was starting, it was managing to start, but the doors weren't opening, the lights weren't turning on, it was brutal.
1: This is the Hummer that you got. right? Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah, right, this is my old 2010 uh, vehicle um, that was, I gotta say though, it got me through, and the heat was working, which was nice, but, but my... But- Working outside in minus 40 with the wind chill, and we didn't have any wind in Calgary. Mm -hmm. And so because I was filling up with gas this weekend, and for the first time, I kind of got a little bit of the wind chill, and holy smokes, and that was only, you know, it wasn't as cold as it was, um, you know, in the deep, dark parts of last week where it was really bad. And fortunately for us here, we didn't have wind. I can only imagine what it was like in areas that did. I think I was hearing like sub 40, minus 40 temperatures. Well, here's the
1: deal, John. I mean, the so the world, the Earth is largely um, it's inhospitable it's to right. human <laughs> living. Okay, it is. It is. Like, I don't. I'm not. So, without the advent of fossil fuels, a country like Canada uh, or the United States or parts of Europe, I just cannot function uh, in the elements that we as humans have to. Uh, deal with and I mean I guess if you know we you know we uh, we didn't have near the size of the global population and you know there, maybe there was a thousand of us kind of running around you know maybe it'd be different but you just can't you can't feed eight billion or seven billion people you can't provide the standard of living and the and the luxuries of uh, western civilization without fossil fuels and so kudos uh, and and you know from the bottom of my heart and our families my family's heart, you know for those of you who are outside bearing the elements, and producing our wonderful fossil fuels, thank you. Yeah. And if you see um, if you see a rig hand, uh, you know this week or over the weekend, uh, why don't you give them a big uh, high five or a hug or if you're cuddly like that a hug or or whatever. But shows them some appreciation, because these guys work hard, and they do a fantastic job on behalf of
0: our country. Yeah. Agreed. Here, hear. Um, I mean, I guess I don't have a deep freeze in my place, and so it was kind of nice I could store my meats and, uh, and other things in my car. Yeah. Oh, for sure. <laughs> no difference in temperature. Probably colder in my car than it is in the freezer in my fridge. Well, there, there's your contribution for reducing your
1: sure. carbon footprint. Yeah. Start on you know, when it's minus 40 out. Start unloading the freezer.
0: Yeah. Unplug it. You can make out ice outside in less than five minutes. Just, just chip it off the. Just throw your tray outside with water and, boom. Then you got. Um, you got your ice going. You got your ice with your whiskey. This is it. So it's not all bad. Okay, so provincial politics. Um, we thank Premier Kenny for being at our State of the Industry luncheon in November. It was fantastic. Minister Rick McIver signs the MOA on Savannah Well Servicing 56, I think it was, Rig 56. Um, and then the UCP announced a program to exempt curtailment on new oil production in 2020. Talk a little bit about that, if well, you don't mind.
1: Well, this, this was an absolute. Um, godsend to be honest with you, John. It is, I think, the, the, one of the reasons why we have 265, 270 rigs working today in 2020 is because what the government ended up doing is they lifted curtailment, not entirely, but they lifted it for new conventional wells outside of what they deemed an oil sands area. And what that meant is that companies, that were kind of on the fence or or weren't even able to, because they were up against uh, their production limits, They were able to deploy capital, um, get rigs out, get people working again, get the industry activity up. And it was it really, as 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 we saw with some of the, you know, uh, you know natural gas prices, and we saw activity being really sluggish, thirty percent here, thirty percent there we were able to finally get a bit of a glimpse of higher activity and and it's starting to to pay off a little bit here in in 2020 so that was a great announcement and sincerely thank the government and it was a tough one politically it was very tough for them to do this because uh, of the potential impact to the differential but the reality is you know you have to look at it almost in two ways one is the differential, yeah, we want to protect pricing. We want to make sure that we get you know the highest royalty that we can uh, if you're the uh, province of Alberta. But you also have to think about the other externalities, positive externalities that come into play with elevated activity levels. And that means you got people that are working, you got people paying income taxes, you got um, you know services that um, you know, you know service companies that are kind of on the, the, the brink of, of insolvency, finally able to get some traction and get some equipment out. Um, so this was, I think this was, a, this was an absolute olive branch to the service sector, in particular drilling and service contractors. But then, of course, on the, on the pipeline front, um, the news starts getting more positive. Line three, uh, the Canadian portion is done. 100,000 plus barrels per day is going to be taken as a result of the uh, the Canadian uh, side being completed, and then uh, we had the announcement. Natural Resources Minister Seamus uh, Minister Seamus or Reagan on hand in Q4 for the announcement that pipe for TMX is going to be put into the ground before Christmas. Huge. Uh, so you know, that
0: that type of news. Um, Additional capacity already coming on, on board with Huge, Line yeah. 3 um, and more positive news. We know that uh, TMX is going to bring a lot more barrels per day on board. So hopefully some of these signals are, are getting around to the international investment community and they're starting to, because we know these EMPs, they're not just planning a year in advance here, they're planning several years in advance here. Uh, and, and, and something else we don't have in, in the, uh, the notes here. I wonder who put those notes together. Yeah, I wonder. Uh, is LNG Canada. And that's yeah. still making huge headway. Uh, of course, Coastal Gas Link is uh, going along nicely. And with, by the way, all of the First Nations along the route signed on in agreement with um, uh, the pipeline company uh, for benefits to their community, jobs, etc., and so, you know, f- unbelievable just the controversy that's still happening with the UN this past uh, week or so, and uh, the BC Human Rights Commission. Um, you know, the f- well,
1: what an opportunity towards true reconciliation and true economic development on on some of these First Nation uh, communities, and I think that's part of the reason where you 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 look at these. These, the, the, the elected councils of these First Nations, um, looking at how do we position our community to prosper, to bring uh, a sense of, um, uh, you know, job creation and, and economic vitality and, and, and social investment within our community. Um, they looked at that as a long-term strategy, and they said, look, I mean, we want to be part of resource development. And uh, we, we want to, we you know, be full participants. Um, you know, what an amazing opportunity for not only Canada, but for these struggling First Nation communities that continue to deal with uh, on-reserve poverty um, and uh, in a way to lift themselves out of this. Uh, not looking for a handout, but a hand up, and that's what what a what a promising opportunity here for for the country.
0: Yep, one hundred percent. So but, that's good news. But then the
1: sad news, I guess, John, is as we pull into the results of the federal election, it really showed um, how divided we are as a country politically. And I think you know it was a it was a message i think to the trudeau liberals that you know when we they talk about this the importance of balancing the environment and balancing the economy or they go hand in hand i don't think they have done a particularly good job of balancing those two equations because when you when it comes to and and here's here's the key point when it comes to combating climate change uh this is you cannot deal with global climate change as as just in a domestic uh, lens. You have to look at it from a global lens. And Canada's leadership when it comes to addressing global climate change is not about penalizing our current industries. It's about allowing them to grow and exporting a technology, and B our resources such as natural gas to displace higher GHG intensive um, uh, emission uh, commodities, that being coal in China and India. And I, I just, I don't, I think, I'm, I, I'm, hope, I'm hopeful that this, the results uh, of this, this new uh, federal parliament will uh, allow the, the Trudeau government to maybe step back, reflect on what the results meant and start dealing with their strategy when it comes to climate change, I think in a more pragmatic and responsible way that doesn't harm jobs, doesn't harm uh, world-class industries, and unites Canadians. That's what we need.
0: Yes, agreed. Very good points. Let me backtrack a bit, Um, put a little plug in here for not only the podcast, but for Weldcore Supply. So we started the podcast in Q3. So that would have been a Q3 note that whoever put these notes together missed. And Weldcore Supply came on board right away as our title sponsorship. We want to thank Leroy and the group down at Weldcore. They are huge supporters of Canadian oil and gas and everything that we are talking about. Um, they do a fantastic job, not only in advocating for our industry, but they are involved in so many local charities where uh, their their family and their employees work. And that's when you talk about the trickle down effect of you know rigs not working. It happens all the time. Our December podcast we talked to United Way. You know, a, a strong oil and gas industry means that. A lot uh, more money is, is going to charity, a lot more can be given to communities throughout our country. Uh, and so, yeah, it's um, a, a special thanks to, to Leroy at uh, Weldcore Supply for picking up the title sponsorship right away in Q3, and uh, yeah. So commodities, Q4, take us through it here.
1: Well. Uh, fifty-eight bucks for WTI, thirty-eight dollars uh, for Western Canadian Select. So we're
0: back to twenty bucks. There. Yeah.
1: So it's it, uh, the differential is has uh, crept up a little bit, um, but look at this one. Aco, a dollar ninety-one. That that's over double the pr- the price that we were getting in Q three well, and Q two.
0: So it gets colder. There's more of a demand for gas. Um, and then and, course- I, and they did some work on on the and I don't.
1: Well, they did some optimization of the the existing natural gas pipeline, right? the TC uh, uh, main pipeline.
0: Right. And that, I mean, I unfortunately don't know a ton about that, but from what I understand, they did a lot of really good work in terms of trying to uh, alleviate some of the bottlenecks from uh, northeastern BC down into southwestern Alberta, where a lot of that stuff can get caught up. So that's fantastic. And hopefully that we will move into uh higher uh you know takeaway capacity and and we can see higher pricing throughout 2020 um you know and, and kind of compensate for some of the seasonal gaps that we traditionally get so that would be nice
1: and of course on the active rigs 157 versus back in 2018 198 down about 21 percent operating days on average monthly 37.97 versus Five thousand seven seventy-eight back in two thousand eighteen, down by about twenty-five percent, and then of course, stay tuned for our service rig uh, operating hours. Yeah, we're still uh, we're still actually aggregating all of that information as we speak, and uh, by the time our next podcast comes out, we'll be able to compare the uh, eighteen and nineteen figures.
0: hmm And I'm hoping that. Uh We're going to be up again in Q4 here, but we'll see. I think it'll be close, just like it has been for uh, the most of 2019. So, okay, we've been rambling on for quite a while here. We're going to wrap things up, but let's, Mark, give us a look at 2020. I mean, you mentioned earlier we're already at, I mean, I don't think think we've seen the positive side at 200 on the drilling rig count, active rig count, for a while. Uh, It's fantastic. Uh, Right away in January, we, we kicked off the first week with, I think, 262. Um, either moving or drilling rigs. It's just, it's been great so far. We talked a little bit about pipelines, but, uh, you know, work with Enbridge is happening. We had a great announcement for Keystone XL uh, last week that TC is going to start building again, which, you know, that is, I mean, I hadn't even been, to be honest with you, I hadn't even been thinking about that. It was line three and it was... um, TMX, but this Keystone is just, that's a huge, huge bonus moving into 2020. Um, You know, we predicted in in 18 that line three would be done by 19. We predicted in 19 that line three would be done by 20. Hopefully our prediction this year is right. Yeah. What else can we look forward to?
1: Well, I'm looking forward to um, uh, blowing the hinges off of our uh, 2020 forecast, to be honest with you. Um, You know, we were looking for a slight slight increase over 2019. However, what I can say is given what we've been talking about, given the fact that we have all this light at the end of the tunnel with pipelines, um, we got uh, two pro-energy governments in Alberta and Saskatchewan, um, and we're sitting at 262 rigs. Now, there, you know, one could, you know, one could throw some cool water on all this and maybe say well maybe this is all about front-end loading capital spends and the rest of the year is going to kind of taper off maybe I mean look I think our industry has been you gotta find some optimism uh, where you can and there's some true tailwinds I think that we can point to that uh, indicate if we continue to see progress on these major files that Maybe 2020 is going to be shaping up to be a material or materially different than uh, or an improvement in 2019, mm-hmm. and
0: um, we're hopeful. And we didn't talk a lot about the really good work that Saskatchewan, the government of Saskatchewan, did all throughout 2019. Uh, Premier Mo has been an ardent supporter of oil and gas, vocal supporter uh, the entire year, um, and so you know, we're working with them. Um, always working with them in uh, reducing red tape, et cetera. Um, So, yes, in terms of having some allies provincially, uh, we have two very strong allies, and that should bode well for 2020. And so who knows? This could be the year where things, uh, maybe we don't call it a complete turnaround, but it would sure be nice to have some some positive momentum and, and have that sustained throughout the entire year. So...
1: Well, we will continue to be uh, pounding the pavement. We'll be heading out to Ottawa with a number of our membership CEOs in a couple weeks' time, sitting down with the um, Prime Minister's office, um, um, yeah, the various key ministries that impact our our industry and our business, and talking to them about the good news when it comes to clean energy and our abilities to um, you know, be a, a complement uh, the government's uh, agenda when it comes to addressing things like emissions, etc. And so, um, uh, you know, looking forward to bringing uh, our membership concerns to the federal government and then continuing to work collaboratively and productively with uh, various provincial governments where our members operate so that we can streamline regulations, uh, reduce costs where where unnecessary regulations exist, and um, and continue to get our people back to work, our equipment back in the field, and um, back to a, uh, to a level of uh, profitability and sustainability for our industry that we, um, we certainly look forward to in, in the months
0: and years to come. Excellent, well that's a wrap for our 2019 year in review. I wouldn't call it comprehensive, but it uh, wasn't bad. I think it went quite well and uh, so thanks for listening to that and stay tuned because coming up next we have our interview with founder of Canadians for Democracy and Prosperity, Prem Singh. Wealthcore is proud to support those who are working hard to keep our country running. Proud to be a Canadian-owned welding filler metal supply company in a country that has the highest environmental and human rights standards in the world. Weldcore supports ethical oil. Weldcore supports the Canadian oil and gas sector. The world needs ethical oil. The world needs Canadian oil. Let Weldcore Supplies help you make that happen. Welcome back to the Weldcore Supply CAODC podcast. Our guest today is Prem Singh, founder of Canadians for Democracy and Prosperity. Over her 15 plus years in finance, capital markets, and advisory roles in energy and energy services, Ms. Singh has developed a strong network in both Canada and India, across the public and private sector, and at the municipal, provincial and federal government levels as well. Welcome Prem.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Well, and thank you for being here. I know that uh, you haven't been feeling well. I don't think any of us have been feeling well uh, lately.
2: Yeah, we've been seconded to our uh, homes because of the cold.
0: Yeah, and I was we were just talking earlier, and it uh, <laughs> seems everyone I talk to has a cough or is sick or is struggling. So as we kick off 2020, health isn't good, but um, the health of our industry, I think, is, is getting better. So that's nice, and we'll get into that coming up here. But I uh, want to start with the—I uh, call it a center. It's not a center. Is it, is it a center, or is it—
2: You could call it a center because of all the different— uh, arms of it okay um we probably should have named it a center but uh yeah i mean we do different things we do advocacy we do education initiatives and we're trying to keep it nonpartisan. we are generally fiscally conservative but we aren't attached to any political parties per se
0: well that's important i think um while we know that uh You know, people's views span parties and and right now things are so polarized that, um, you know, a message of of unity in in terms of ideas is uh, is important. Um, So what, I guess, what led to the development of it?
2: Well, so back in 2015 with the election of the NDP, I mean, I was always politically inclined but never involved in politics with any party, or I never worked for a political party. I may have sat on a board here or there, but that was the extent of my involvement. And uh, we started, after the NDP were in power, a movement called Alberta Can't Wait. Alberta Can't Wait was a grassroots-only movement that first of all unified all the unity movements out there, and then we were a precursor to Jason Kenney coming in to seek the PC party leadership, and so it was essentially a precursor
0: for the UCP. Okay, and so? So
2: it was uh, full grassroots. We didn't have a lot of money, but we traveled the province, talked to people. It was an initiative that you know both the PC and Wildrose, the political parties and establishment were against, but once they saw that this is what the people wanted, they had to, you know, come around and either lead the parade or be left behind. So once we saw the success of that, we realized at the last municipal election, even though we only started in August and the election was October, but we rallied together what pennies we could and, you know, really gave you know a hard time. We didn't We didn't endorse candidates, but we did inform Calgarians who we thought you shouldn't vote for at a tax and spend level. Okay. Yeah, and then with the federal election coming, we thought it was time and we needed to educate people across the country given the troubles that our energy sector, actually a lot of sectors were having across the country, and so we thought it was important for, you know, capital markets and for free enterprise to have a voice because as you said the conversation right now is so polarizing and sometimes when political parties or governments put even facts out people refuse to even look at it because they're so biased so if you have a third party putting out you know small facts perhaps the other sides can at least look at it objectively
0: sure So I'd like to back up. You mentioned there were a lot of of different groups out there. How challenging was that? I mean, and and can you give us an idea of how many there were and and just some of the positions? There was at least
2: seven or eight of them, and it was very challenging because everybody wanted to have control. And there were political, former political, um, I guess, politicians or politicos that wanted to just, you know... I guess, uh, take over the whole movement for their own agendas. So we tried our best to say that, look, this wasn't about any one of us. It was about actual Albertans.
0: Right. Yeah. And keep the focus on Albertans. Exactly. Yeah. So I was watching... um, the recording of your speech on the weekend here, and maybe tell us a bit about uh, the event you were at this weekend.
2: Yes, we had a, we co-hosted an event called the Value of Alberta. Um, it was basically we had a, several panels on what we can as Alberta, what the value Alberta brings to Canada, what we can and cannot do, the pros and cons of implementing a lot of things that Quebec has right now that don't require constitutional change. Things that we can do right now that would help Albertans.
0: Okay. Well, I thought you made a a very astute observation that politicians are not celebrities, and in fact, they actually work for us. do you think this is lost on, on people these days? or Because that really hit home for me, just in the sense of, I guess, how people are viewing. And, and you know, new media and, and whatnot contributes to that. And I understand completely that as a politician, it's important to be involved in all of these uh, communications channels. So that's not the issue. But it, it does seem like there's a real culture of celebrity, at least in, in Canada, and especially at the federal level, And people forget that these are elected civil servants that are supposed to be doing, you know, working on behalf of of us.
2: Exactly. I, I think there's a big disconnect between these people that become politicians because many of them have zero work or life experience and they get into office to create policies for the working class. And then they become elevated to such a celebrity status, and it does get to their head. And the arrogance and entitlement, especially in times like this across the country, Alberta even more so, Saskatchewan too, there becomes a resentment between the voters and the leadership. And I, one of the other points that I brought up was that you know true leadership has to have empathy and I don't feel that we have that at any of our at any levels of government right now we don't have a voice that is unifying I feel that government it once you're in government you're governing for everybody not just those that are ideologically aligned to you it becomes your responsibility to get everybody together and govern as a whole and I I feel that we're not that message isn't being sent to everyone Canadians or Albertans or calgarians
0: I think that's a great point and and um, you know if if you're inclined to want to push your own agenda i mean not necessarily your own agenda but you believe in an idea that and and you really believe in it strongly, then you know personally i Politics isn't the place for you. You should be working in an advocacy role or something like that and trying to convince people to come on over to your side. But politics, for the reasons you've mentioned, that's not the place for that sort of thing. Because when you are elected, as you just said, you're elected uh, to do work for everyone, and you're going to have to suspend... You're going to have to find a middle ground there. And I think that, um, yeah, we've seen... uh, We haven't seen that happening, and I think uh, that's a real source of frustration.
2: And I think it also in this day and age with social media, governments have their communication staff that communicate with other people, you know, normal citizens on social media, and they need to take a high road and communicate with respect to everybody, even those that might not be nice to them, they're the government, so they need to take a higher road and be nice to everybody and respect everybody's opinions.
0: Well, isn't that the role of leaders? Exactly. Shouldn't that be the role of leaders? So there's some education involved there, and that's my little segue into uh, education being a primary focus for you guys. What are some of the uh, initiatives you're working on?
2: Well, we've done two internships, and they run from June to August. We have four university students that we train them on campaigning, on communications, on ad- issue advocacy, uh, social media training, media training, and it, it's a quite intensive course load. They do get a monthly stipend and it's a full day every day from June to the end of August. We've done two of those right now. Um, uh, to this date and we're looking to expand it to maybe six students but we'd like to offer and start a campus club with other political party campus clubs not just on the conservative side but maybe make it more just to educate students on common sense on common sense you know, free market principles and how it is common sense. I feel conservatism, the word itself, has a bad connotation with the youth. And what I found in our last internship, because I did sit in on their interviews, these four students weren't necessarily all conservative to begin with. But by the end of those three months, they realized it was just common sense. Sure, yeah, and what was more important to them, we would be surprised. It was more you know um, the whole political correctness, freedom of speech. they were very, very tired of you know certain groups hijacking our language, yeah, and and I personally feel the same way. I mind you, I'm like several decades older, but <laughs> I still use words that people are like, "Oh, you can't say that and And I'm like, well, I can because I don't mean it in that new meaning that these guys have conjured up recently. Right. You know, if we don't stand up and defend our language, then we will let people hijack it, and we won't be able to say anything.
0: Big waiting list to get in here? And what school is it? Dunham, or is it a variety uh, of schools? Or?
2: Well, we we put out the advertisement on social media, and then we get applications, and they're interviewed. Yeah. So we usually start that process in May, the beginning of May. Okay. So that, you know, if students don't have a job lined up, I mean, our st- monthly stipend is only $2,000. So, you know, it's it's bare bones. Right. Yeah. Everything well, we do is on a bare bones budget. Sure. Yeah.
0: Well, still, I mean, that's great experience. And, you know, you, I guess you'd have to have a yeah, part-time and role. And
2: a lot of our uh, interns have chosen to remain uh, involved and engaged which that's really good because we need more the next generation to be engaged and to be involved. And my whole purpose in creating this center now is I think it's our responsibility to create the next generation of leaders. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel conservatives or you know, a capitalists, we haven't done a good job of mentoring the next generation because we're too busy working. And we need to focus time and energy on
1: that.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's been, we were talking earlier um, in the show, Mark and I, about uh, advocacy in the advocacy space. And it's great that young people are getting involved. I mean, they always have been involved in in protests, uh, you know, going back over the decades. Um, But it's a bit of a different uh, playing field now. In oil and gas, we've seen a lot of advocacy groups... Uh, sprout up over the past few years Um, and I'd like to get a sense from you if you think you know social media and the political climate around the world right now is is contributing to not just oil and gas advocacy campaigns but you know we there are a lot of issues campaigns out there and is you know do you think that uh, the tools number one as well as, um, as we said, the polarization are, are or contributing, contributing factors to that.
2: To the amount of yeah, advocacy to, campaigns? Yeah, because
0: they're all over the place.
2: Well, I think that's just something we're going to have to accept with the onset of, you know, social media and our smartphones with information being instantaneous or you could call it misinformation because oftentimes falsehoods, can carry a lot more weight than the truth. And some people refuse to acknowledge and accept the facts. And there's no way around that. You cannot convince those people that are so hardened by what they believe in. And there is that saying, if you repeat a lie enough times, it eventually becomes the truth.
1: Well, it's a
0: tactic. Exactly. Yeah.
2: So we are going to have to accept that this is the way it is. So we are going to have to utilize the same tactics that everybody else is using. Having said that, I think in the energy sector we have several movements that do very good jobs. My only concern is that some of those are only viewed viewed by our existing supporters. Mm -hmm. And we're preaching already to the converted. Mm -hmm. We're not gaining traction with or nor are we reaching the people that need to be reached because they view it as coming from a certain side so they just refuse to acknowledge it or even take a look at it so we need to speak their language
0: and that's a big challenge isn't it when it seems like everyone's fact everyone has their facts but the facts aren't the same. Exactly. So somebody's not telling exactly. the truth here. Um, and that's, I mean, we experienced that criticism with Oil Respect. We still do. You know, we always get, you're preaching to the choir. And early on in the campaign, our response was always, well, you know, as a choir then, you're not very good because we're not hearing too many, too much seeing happening. Uh, but we can't say that anymore, you know. Uh, we've had a lot of, of great advocacy groups, you uh, sort of spark up and I think we've been doing a much better job as an industry and and, you know a lot of non-industry groups just sort of getting agreed
2: I mean before it was zero now we have so many different groups and the more groups the merrier you know because I think that each group has their own niche and their own expertise and their own audience and you need groups across the spectrum
0: So can you tell me a little bit about the idea for Energy Gives Back?
2: Yeah, we felt that with all the energy advocacy groups, there wasn't necessarily a, a group that personalized the sector, and I don't think the rest of the country, or a lot of people actually in our own province, realize the amount that the people in the energy sector themselves give back to the communities. So, we wanted to put a face and a story to the energy sector and how they help out in just n- normal day to day, you know, coaching hockey or when we had the Fort McMurray fires, how there were volunteer firemen, just nor- and in stories. Because we've found in our advocacy the more you pull at people's heartstrings, the more responsive they are.
0: Yeah. I would agree. And I think...
2: uh, And if you insert facts in between those stories, you'll get more... People will digest that better than just hitting them with facts. Then they think, oh, you're just an energy company shill. Or, you know, you're one of the political parties' arm.
0: Yeah. Well, that's always been a challenge, and I know... uh, Talking about the fires in Fort McMurray, we, did, we were at an event and, and uh, it was a few years back now, and a fellow from one of the larger companies up there, I won't name any names, um, was telling me about the great work they were doing, bussing people out of the uh, danger zone, getting them into some of their camps up there, they were providing food and shelter, all at no cost to taxpayers, all on the company dime. And then when I asked him, you know, whether I could talk to somebody and, and share those stories, he said, probably not. So, you know, I, I think, and I guess maybe, I don't know why, I, and I'm not going to try to, to to suggest why they came up with that, but um, if I guess you couldn't blame them if they were to say, yeah, well, they're just, you know, the public will react by saying, oh, of course they're going to say that, and they're just shills and etc. So that is definitely a challenge and I think that, you know, grassroots stories as, as you're talking about and, and it, stories of real people in communities, smaller communities, larger communities, are uh, they do tug on the heartstrings and, uh, and hit home. One of the other curious things that I wanted to ask you about, get your perspective on is why is Canada? Under attack here. I mean, you know, when you look around the world at all the oil producing jurisdictions, mm-hmm. you wouldn't think Canada would be under the microscope, yet here we are.
2: Well, some people like to consider these things to be conspiracies, but it definitely has to do with other countries' own interests and certain shareholders, global shareholders, that have their own interests at heart. And what we've seen and what we've learned is that a lot of the, you know, this whole climate change business has been around for years and they've evolved what they've called it over the past decades, and it's not necessarily about controlling, well, not controlling the climate or or offsetting carbon, it's more about a transfer of wealth. So, Canada, because of our geographic alignment with the U.S. and with a lot of these globalists having lost control, so to speak, with the current president, we've become a major target.
0: And I think we, And yeah. it's not
2: just the energy sector, it's been the fishing sector, it's been the uh, forestry sector, it, a lot of sectors. We've just, it's hit home to us now, and we've finally realized this after it's hit the energy sector so dramatically.
0: And it's funny because I think we're just as a, as a people, we're receptive to, uh, you know, not wanting to offend, um, and so when people accuse us of something, we you know our typically our first response is sorry. Uh, we're known for that, and so what we've been encouraging people to do is start asking your, because you know. You'd say, ah, okay, yeah, we're, not, we're not quite doing enough. Well, you know, the people in your neighborhood, they all work in this industry. Why don't you go and ask them, talk to them, and see, and they'll, they'll start telling you. Um, and I think that as a, as a nation, we all know and, and respect each other, uh, but it just doesn't seem like that respect extends to when we're out. Um, we won't defend ourselves, I guess, is what I'm saying. and, and mm-hmm. We definitely need to do a little bit more of that when it comes to
2: I mean, we haven't defended ourselves within our own province, let alone the country. And that is a, a huge problem. There was a, a elderly lady I know who spent five weeks in Ontario going, visiting a senior citizen home, one a day before the federal election. And she was saying that, you know, if the seniors make up thirty a third of our voting, we're in big trouble because All the seniors have been indoctrinated by their grandchildren who have been indoctrinated by our education system, plus the media. Right. So, you know, we have, we're in a war, but we're very behind. Yeah. And it feels like on some days we're losing.
0: (laughs) Agreed. I mean, the opponents of our industry have done a great job. and we t- we were just talking before we started recording here about the wet um and the the UN's i guess not doing the research to get both sides of the story there um and it just it's amazing that uh we've become more willing to believe our detractors than our fellow citizens um but tactically you know you mentioned misdirection and and if you say it as many times or over and over again people are going to believe it um i really think that the veil might be lifting a little bit on just who can i guess start up a news a quote unquote news organization or who can start up a quote unquote treaty council um because you know Media, as we talked about, the tools are out there for everyone, and I think that that level of media awareness, once it starts getting into, I mean, younger kids are are digital natives. You know, they've grown up with the technology. They understand that it takes nothing to just go and get online and build a free website and, and call the it whatever you want. And the
2: younger generation aren't looking at conventional media, even online. They're looking at. Other sources like Reddit and other, you know, they get their information from the non-conventional media. So you're right. The more people that are actually looking into these things, they're uncovering the truth themselves.
0: Yeah, and that's what it takes. I was actually at a dinner uh, last week with a young person who uh, had moved to Calgary from Vancouver. And admittedly, said hated oil and gas prior to living here, and uh, has now changed uh, her views. And and I, so I asked, why you know what kind of did it for you, and exactly what you said. She took the time to to do her own research, and not just rely on one or two sources, but you know, wide variety of sources, exactly. wide variety of opinions. Start asking some questions. And now, you know, wants to stay in the province. Uh, she's here for studying, doesn't want to go back to BC and wants to build a career in Alberta and, and in oil and gas. So Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, I was kind of blown away. But, you know, the, I guess I was hoping for uh, an easier answer than having to do the research yourself, yourself yeah. you know, because it, uh, we know that not everybody's going to do that. But, um Who knows? That was an encouraging conversation. And I
2: think you bring up a good point, and I'm trying to tell everyone to do the same, is that we have to start talking to everybody, people outside our own bubbles. I myself find I'm having these kind of conversations with my yoga instructors or, you know, just anybody and everyone that you speak to. You don't have to push them on educating them on energy, but just open the conversation get them to start asking the questions so that you're not... It it doesn't appear that we're being condescending or we're... You know, because we've been demonized by the media and by the left. You know, the anti-energy groups. And you look at even... In Ontario and Quebec, they don't even necessarily feel sorry for us.
0: (laughs) It's just true,
2: yeah. Right? I mean, they go through... They've gone through manufacturing job losses as well. But and we've helped them. But they don't look at it the same way when we've had more job losses. They're just like, "Oh, well, you guys deserve it because you've had good times for so long."
0: Yeah. I wanted to ask you, you have a background in finance. Um, how big of a threat is this whole divestment movement in your
2: mind? It's a very big threat in that you look at how many of the multinationals that have left Alberta and Saskatchewan alone. And I know at a uh, because a colleague of mine called me the day after our federal election at a pension fund conference, Alberta was a no-investment zone because of our relationship that's combative between Ottawa and Edmonton. So, you know, when you have pension funds and other investment funds that are saying because of our governmental relationships, we're not a good place to invest, that's a problem. You know, because these funds and these companies are going to other countries. They are going to countries in the Middle East, they are going to countries in South America, they are going to countries in Africa. And I deal, my day job is more on the commodities trading side of things. And I'm seeing it. You're seeing lots of transactions happen between Asia and South America, between Asia and Africa. And we're missing the boat. I think it was 2015 when I gave a talk to the, I think it was the Energy Council of, of Canada, and I gave a talk saying that we would miss the next two LNG cycles. And I'm prepared now to say we'll miss the next two. Because you have other countries, like Qatar, coming on board with LNG, and the U.S. is already selling and renegotiating some of their contracts with Asia. We're just too far behind. And yeah. there, there are still discoveries being made. Nobody, we, do you remember back in the day when there would be a big oil or a big natural gas discovery, it would be big news. That's no longer, but they are still happening. Yeah. People just don't talk about it anymore. Right,
0: and, and isn't that interesting, you know, and we talk about how things change and information changes, and, and uh, which is why I can't believe how, how deeply the, uh, the whole climate change, uh, and I'm not saying, you know, not saying that the climate isn't changing, but I guess I should clarify and say that catastrophic or the alarmist mm-hmm. view of, of climate change has sunk in so deeply because, I mean, you just look at the stats that came out of that Inconvenient Truth movie back in '06. none of those came true. But I can remember being at a, at a rig manager's meeting in 2008 and the presentation was on peak oil. Yeah. And we were going to be running out of oil and, and natural gas soon, that's right. so you better, you know, and this, and this was all, businesses were planning for this, uh, all of these models were in place. So we just, I mean, we don't know. I mean, yeah. we, we do our best to predict, but we just don't know. And so that's that's a, a really good point. Um, well before we wrap it up here i want to ask you about um, this new deal for the west you mentioned it a bit earlier talked about it at uh, the conference you were at you're close um, to a lot of people you have a great network what is the appetite for it um, in your mind i mean how where are we at with uh, and and i guess if you could walk us through some of the, the Varying degrees, because uh, overall separation, I guess, is at one end, and then at the other end is, well, can we d- can we make some tweaks uh, provincially in the same manner that Quebec has to basically just uh, fortify our province and, and a little bit and make us less susceptible to decisions that are being made in central Canada. So, if you wouldn't mind commenting on, on
2: sure, that. I I think a new deal for the west is amenable and should be amenable to all Albertans in that there's a lot of things that Quebec has that we can enact right now that don't require a constitutional amendment like having our own pension plan you know having our own immigration our own uh, RCMP we need to demand that TMX start right away You know, I know there's one more court ruling, but it needs to, like, happen in the next 30 to 60 days. We need to repeal or alter C-69. You know, we need to to let Ottawa know that we are going to do all these things, and otherwise we will have a vote. I don't think that separation is a must, and it's... We're all proud Canadians. We're all proud Albertans. But if we need to have that vote to get what we want, then so be it. You know, because it did work for Quebec. So I don't think a lot of Albertans or the majority of Albertans are keen on separating, but in order to get us more autonomy, if we need to have that vote, we should. And we want to make it easier for our leadership to do that so that it's not him pushing that message out, it's actually the citizens of Alberta and perhaps Saskatchewan that message and agenda. So, ha- is there an appetite? I definitely believe there is, because it would help us out immensely right now. Yeah. Yeah.
0: For sure. Well, thank you very much for your time. That was Prem Singh with the uh, Canadians for Democracy and Prosperity. How can people get in touch with you if they're interested in your ideas, if they're interested in more information
2: um, they can go to democracyandprosperity.ca, and they, there's links to email us and follow us on our Facebook, Twitter, and other forms of social media. And we do also have a movement that's specific to the New Deal for the West, and that is abstrongabfree.com. Okay. So, But that's all listed on our website.
0: Excellent. Well, thank you very much for coming in. Uh, and joining us on the Weld Core Supply CAODC podcast. I think we're all excited about what happens in the West, what happens to our uh, oil and gas industry in 2020. It's early days, but uh, things are looking up, in my opinion. Um, and it just, even if things don't get that much better, it's definitely going to be an interesting thing. So thank you for joining us.
2: Thank and, you for having me.
0: All right. Take care. Of you.